Hello and welcome to the reading of the Courier for um, December 20th. And this is a Tuesday. I am your reader, Peter Welch. And let's now take a look at the news. Panel urges Trump charges. House committee calls for prosecution related to January 6th insurrection in Washington. The House January 6th committee urged the Justice Department on Monday to bring criminal charges against Donald Trump for the violent 2021 Capitol insurrection, calling for accountability for the former president and a time of reflection and reckoning. After one of the most exhaustive and aggressive congregational probes in memory, the panel's seven Democrats and two Republicans are recommending criminal charges against Trump and associates who helped him launch a wide-ranging pressure campaign to try to overturn his 2020 election loss. The panel also released a lengthy summary of its final report with findings that Trump engaged in a multi-part conspiracy to thwart the will of voters. At a final meeting on Monday, the committee alleged violations of four criminal statutes by Trump in both the run-up to the riot and during the insurrection itself, as it recommended the former president for prosecution to the Justice Department. Among the charges they recommend for prosecution is aiding an insurrection, an effort to hold him directly accountable, and for his supporters who stormed the Capitol of that day. The committee also voted to refer conservative lawyer John Eastman, who devised dubious legal maneuvers aimed at keeping Trump in power for prosecution on two of the same statutes as Trump, conspiracy to defraud the United States and obstructing an official proceeding. While a criminal referral is most symbolic with the Justice Department ultimately deciding whether to prosecute Trump or others, it is a decisive end to a probe that had an almost singular focus from the start. Chairman Benny Thompson, Democrat of Mississippi, said that Trump broke the faith that people have when they, uh, they cast ballots in a democracy and that the criminal referrals could provide a roadmap to justice by using the committee's work. I believe nearly two years later, this is still a time of reflection and reckoning, Thompson said. If we are to survive as a nation of laws and democracy, this can never, ever happen again. Wyoming Representative Liz Cheney, the panel's Republican vice chairwoman, said in her opening remarks that every president in American history has defended the orderly transfer of power except one. The committee also voted 9-0 to zero to approve its final report, which will include findings, interview transcripts, and legislative recommendations. The full report is expected to be released on Wednesday. The report's 154-page summary, made public as the hearing ended, found that Trump engaged in a multi-part conspiracy to overturn the election. While the majority of the report's main findings are not new, it altogether represents one of the most damning portraits of an American president in recent history, laying out in great detail Trump's broad effort to overturn his own defeat and what the, lawyer, the lawmakers say is his direct responsibility for the insurrection of his supporters. The panel, which will dissolve on January 3rd with the new Republican-led House, has conducted more than 1,000 interviews, held 10 well-watched public hearings, and collected more than a million documents since it launched in July of 2021. 
As it has gathered the massive trove of evidence, the members have become emboldened in declaring that Trump, a Republican, is to blame for the violent attack on the Capitol by his supporters almost two years ago. After beating their way past police, injuring many of them, the January 6 rioters stormed the Capitol and interrupted the certification of Biden's presidential election win, echoing Trump's lies about widespread election fraud and sending lawmakers and others running for their lives. The attack came after weeks of Trump's efforts to overturn his defeat, a campaign that was extensively detailed by the committee in multiple public hearings and laid out again by lawmakers on the panel at Monday's meeting. Many of Trump's former aides testified about his unprecedented pressure on states, on federal officials, and Pence to object to Biden's win. The committee has also described in great detail how Trump's riled up the crowd at a rally that morning and then did little to stop his supporters for several hours as he watched the violence unfold on television. The panel and some new evidence at the meeting, including a recent interview with longtime Trump aide Hope Hicks, describing a conversation she had with Trump around the time. She said that he told her that no one would care about his legacy if he lost the election. Hicks also told the committee that Trump told her the only thing that matters is winning. Trump's campaign did not immediately respond to a request for comment, but the former president slammed members of the committee on Sunday as thugs and scoundrels, as he has confirmed to falsely dispute his 2020 loss. While so-called criminal referral has no real legal standing, it is a forceful, forceful statement by the committee and adds to political pressure already on Attorney General Merrick Garland and Special Counsel Jack Smith, who is conducting an investigation into January 6 and Trump's actions. On the recommendation to charge Trump on aiding an insurrection, the committee said in the report's summary that the former president was directly responsible for summoning what became a violent mob and refused repeated entreaties from his aides to condemn the rioters or to encourage them to leave. For obstructing an official proceeding, the committee cites Trump's relentless badgering of Vice President Mike Pence and others to prevent their certification of the election results on the 6th of January. And his repeated lies about the election and efforts to undo the results open him to a charge of conspiracy to defraud the United States, panels go on to say. The final charge recommended by the panel is conspiracy to make a false statement, citing the scheme by Trump and his allies to put forward slates of fake electors in battleground states won by President Joe Biden. All right, let's take a look now here what's going on in Iowa. Osage Care Center puts residents in jeopardy. Nurses' behavior drug issue may lead to fines. A North Iowa nursing home where a resident was smoking meth and a nurse allegedly left residents in fear for their safety could be facing fines from the federal government. State records indicate that the Osage Rehab and Health Care Center in Mitchell County was cited recently by state inspectors for 16 regulatory violations, including a failure to address the illegal drug use of, may, of a male resident who had a psychoactive substance abuse disorder. In mid-September, 
The care facility received a lab report that indicated the man had tested positive for methamphetamine. Days later, the man was observed screaming at the staff, upset over a television that he claimed was his, but which belonged to the, uh, to the facility. The man yelled, get me out of my effing TV right now, or I'm going to start breaking S. The man then went into another residence room and ripped away that individual's oxygen supply. When the staff told the man to stay out of the other residence rooms, the man replied, I don't give a F. I'm going to start tearing S apart. According to inspectors, the man's chart indicates that days after that incident, a nurse reported that police had been called to the facility several times in the previous seven days, but the officers could not do anything because the man refused to let anyone search through his belongings. It was around that time that a nurse walked into the man's room while he was smoking meth from a meth pipe. The pipe, uh, rather, the police rather, returned to the care facility and searched the man's room, finding three meth pipes and a white residue inside on his scooter. The substance later tested positive for meth. A few weeks later, on October 12th, a nurse documented having told the man, we did find methamphetamine in your room with pipes. It does bother me. It, nine days later, on the 21st of October, a state inspector interviewed the man and he confirmed the staff had caught him smoking meth in his room not too long ago. A week after the interview, on the 28th of October, a worker approached a nurse in the home and reported that it smelled bad in the man's room. The nurse later reported that she approached the man's uh, room and could smell the methamphetamine even before entering. It smelled very strong, the nurse reported. Okay, let's take a look at Cedar Falls, Dispelling the Darkness. Jewish group gathers in Cedar Falls to light menorah at start of Hanukkah. In Cedar Falls, Overman Park was the first stop for Rabbi Aaron Shamel and members of the Shadbad Northeast Iowa in Postville as they began a journey of spreading the meaning of Hanukkah to communities throughout the region. Several dozen people uh, of all ages took in the lighting of the menorah as part of the ceremony and festivities along the West 2nd Street side of the downtown park on a blistering cold Sunday, the first night of the holiday. Cedar Falls begins the celebrations, exclaimed Shamel to, to, to cheers. Mayor Rob Green lit, lit, rather I should say, the middle and elevated candle known as the Shamash, representative of the servants who devote their lives to helping others. It's then used to kindle the other eight branches of the menorah as an additional one lit every night. Ted Letterman of Waterloo kindled the first candle in recognition of the first eight nights of Hanukkah. I think it's wonderful that the Shabbat in Postville comes to our community, said Naomi McCormick, a Cedar Falls resident and the board secretary of the Sons of Jacob Synagogue in Waterloo. The Jewish are a minority in Iowa, and it's really important that people from other communities come here and give others the opportunity to learn about our holidays. Attendees danced and sang traditional songs while many ate latkes and donuts, socialized and grabbed free dreidels and menorahs to bring home. Shamel told the story of Hanukkah from more than 2,000 years ago and how a weak and small military of Jewish people prevailed in taking, black, taking back rather, Jerusalem and the temple. They found only one jar of, un, 
of undefiled oil, which was used for lighting menorahs as part of the daily service at the temple. It miraculously lasted for eight days, according to the story. He said that the tale gives people hope in overcoming the seemingly mighty negative powers and many challenges we face in our lives by adding light the same way we add a small candle and dispelling the darkness. And here's something that's uh, certainly applicable for all of us here. A winter storm is predicted for the region. High chance of snow Wednesday, wind later in Waterloo. Although Tuesday's weather is expected to be dry, snow and wind is on the horizon for those in the Hawkeye State. A winter storm is in the forecast for later in the week, which could affect holiday travel. The National Weather Service is predicting a 90% chance of snow starting Wednesday night, putting Blackhawk and surrounding counties in a winter storm watch. Danny Cassidy, a meteorologist at KWWL, said that the hardest stretch will start on Wednesday night through Friday afternoon or evening. The snow will be heaviest from Wednesday evening to Thursday morning, he exclaimed. After the snow, the wind is expected to gust up to 50, uh, 50 miles per hour until Friday evening. We could maybe get five to six inches of snow, Cassidy says. At that point, it'll be dry and cold so the wind can pick it up. It can be blizzard-like conditions. The NWS reports that after the snow falls, there could be blowing snow from Friday to Saturday. Cassidy said that last week, South Dakota had a blizzard and the state's Department of Transportation advised no travel. We might have something similar, he said. Cassidy recommended traveling this holiday week only if you absolutely have to do it. Apart from the snow, he says, as the high temperature Thursday will be in the single digits. And with the wind gusts, could feel like 20 to 30 below zero. He said those traveling should make sure to have essentials such as jumper cables, extra gloves, hats, food and water in case of being stranded. Okay, what else is going on in Waterloo? Man found guilty in 2021 robbery. Waterloo man faces up to 55 years in prison in home invasion attack. In Waterloo, a Waterloo man faces up to 55 years in prison after he was found guilty. Judge Andre Dreyer ruled Monday that she found credible evidence that Patrick Roosevelt Hickman Isabel, age 20 of Waterloo, broke into a Newell Street home while armed with a handgun and assaulted a resident inside with the intent to commit a theft. The verdict means Isabel, who had waived his right to a jury, is convicted of first-degree robbery, first-degree burglary, and going armed with intent. Sentencing will be at a later date, and Isabel remains detained without bond until then. Both the robbery and the burglary charges carry up to 25 years in prison each. Going arm carries up to five years in prison. It will be up to court to determine if the sentences are concurrent or consecutive. The robbery charge requires 70 percent, 17 and a half years, be served before parole. Authorities said that Isabel and Wilmers Burt broke upon, or I should say broke open rather, a bedroom window at a Waterloo woman's home early on July 14th of 2021. After climbing inside, Isabel kicked open the door to the woman's 19-year-old grandson's room, pointed the pistol at his head, and demanded cash and jewelry. A relative sleeping in the basement heard the noise and called 911. Police surrounded the house and found Isabel and Bert inside. 
A 9mm Taurus handgun was found hidden in a living room couch. Trial for Isabel began last week, and testimony lasted two days. Burt pleaded to robbery, burglary, and going armed, and his sentencing will be at a later date. Because he was 17 years of age at the time of the crime, Burt isn't facing a mandatory minimum sentence. What else is going on in Waterloo? Salvation Army at 45% of Christmas goal. Red Kettle Campaign is entering its final week. The Salvation Army distributed Christmas toys and food vouchers during this weekend to nearly 300 Cedar Valley households, almost 75 more than it served in 2021. According to a news release, the organization hears Households that are in need because of high inflation as well as ongoing supply chain issues impacting jobs. The continued presence of COVID and other illnesses leading to reduced hours at work and the mental, emotional, spiritual and physical exhaustion stemming from the many global and personal crises. When families registered for Christmas assistance in October, they had the opportunity to share needs and wants for their children. Because the Salvation Army asks donors to adopt specific children in need from one of the many angel trees throughout the community, the personnel or the personal needs rather are often met in very individual ways. The list ranged from clothing, shoes, well-fitting coats, diapers, baby wipes, beds, mattresses, sheets, pillows, blankets, toys, cribs, diapers, wipes, or warm clothing. The Salvation Army is in the final week of its Red Kettle campaign as well. The organization is at 45% of its overall Christmas fundraising goal, with another 426000 left to raise, the release said. Its community Christmas meal is scheduled from 11.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. Friday at the 89 Franklin Street Building. The Christmas worship begins at 10.30 a.m. Sunday inside the chapel. The volunteer for, rather, excuse me, I should say to volunteer, rather, for additional information or get any questions answered, you can contact Katie Harn, Volunteer and Community Relations Corridor, uh, coordinator at 319-235-9358. And again, that's 319-235-9358. Or you can go to the internet and you can go to Katie, K-A-T-I-E dot H-A-R-N at U-S-C dot Salvation Army dot org. The headquarters at 89 Franklin Street will be closed on the 26th of December and 30th and January 2nd. It will not have a perishable goods pantry December 27th, but does plan to have a pantry on the 29th of December. The noon meal on December 28th will be a bag lunch served to go. Normal hours and services at 89 Franklin resume on the 3rd of January. Shelter services will continue to operate 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will not be impacted by the holidays. Okay, let's go over to Des Moines now. This is the Capital Notebook. Reynolds is pushing Biden to end health emergency. In Des Moines, Iowa Governor uh, Kim Reynolds joined 24 other Republican governors in calling on President Joe Biden to end the federal COVID-19 public health emergency. The governors wrote in a letter to the White House that the emergency phase of the pandemic is behind us and it's time that we move on. Biden told 60 Minutes in September that the pandemic is over and the U.S. Senate passed a resolution to end the national emergency in November. But COVID is spiking again. 
ahead of the holidays. Part of a tribemic with the flu and respiratory virus, also known as RSV, that is overwhelming hospitals and health workers across the state and the nation. We have come so far since the beginning of the pandemic. We now have the tools and information necessary to help protect Iowans from COVID-19, such as testing and vaccine, Reynolds said in a statement. We have returned to life as normal, and it's time that the federal government policies reflected that. Biden has extended the public health emergency until at least the 11th of January and is expected to extend it again until April. The governors argue that the national emergency is costing states hundreds of millions of dollars due to Medicaid requirements under the federal declaration and urge Biden to let it expire in April, giving states several months to to prepare for the end of the emergency. Since the beginning of the pandemic, the governor's right states have added $20 million to Medicaid rolls, an increase of 30%. Legislation passed by Congress is 2020 included, a requirement that Medicaid programs keep people continuously enrolled through the COVID-19 public health emergency in exchange for an enhanced federal funding. Primarily due to the continuous enrollment requirement, Medicaid Medicaid enrollment has grown substantially compared with before the pandemic, and the uninsured rate has dropped. But when the emergency ends, millions of people could lose that coverage and could reverse recent gains, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation. When the enhanced federal match provides some assistance to blunt the increased costs due to higher enrollment numbers in our Medicaid programs, states are required to increase our non-federal match to adequately cover all enrollees and cannot disenroll members from the program unless they do so voluntarily, the governors wrote. Making the situation worse... We know that a considerable number of individuals have returned to employer-sponsored coverage or are receiving coverage through the individual market, and yet states still must still account and pay for their Medicaid enrollment in our non-federal share. Menke joins state AG department. Iowa Secretary of Agricultural Mike Nag named Grant Menke as a Deputy Secretary of the Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship. Menke, who served as VP of Market Development with the Iowa Corn Growers Association and Iowa Corn Promotion Board, succeeds Julie Kenny, who's leaving the department for a new opportunity after serving five years as deputy, according to the news release. And let's now take a look at a column. This one is written by Alan Gobert, and the title of the article is Howard's Priceless Gift of Simple Giving. The Christmas tree was a scrub cedar hacked from the edge of the woods that bordered the farm. Big bulb lights strung in barber pole fashion generated almost as much heat as the nearby wood stove. Yellowed Christmas cards saved over the years and perched like doves and the untrimmed branches served as ornaments. I believe this is the prettiest tree I've ever had, Howard proclaimed as we stood in its glow, and it smells good too. The only scent evident to me was a mixture of wood smoke and the remains of a fried pork supper. But I lied and said, sure does. Howard beckoned me to sit. We had shared Christmas Day in the dairy barn, and it was his request that we share a bit of the night also. 
He knew I was alone because my family, his employer, was visiting relatives. And I knew he was alone because he was always alone. A bachelor for almost 40 years. I'll get us some Christmas cheer, he offered as I sank into the sofa. In untied work shoes, he shuffled toward the kitchen. A minute later, he returned with two water glasses filled with rhubarb wine. It's been a good Christmas. Ain't it, alley boy? He asked me he asked me to sit, sit in the labor-back chair by the stove. He had called me alley boy for as long as I could remember. I had taken to call him Hoard the Dairyman after the title of a farm magazine my father subscribed to. I, I nodded. It had been a good day, and two wobbly newborn calves greeted us when we arrived at the dairy barn early that morning. Wet and shivering, we dried them with the past summer's straw before showing them how to find breakfast at their mama's side. One was a bull, and the other one was a, uh, a heifer. We ought to name them Mary and Joseph, Howard, now said as we rehashed the day on account of them being born today. Mary and Joseph. Generally, Howard only had one name for all cows, Sukum. None of us knew what it meant or where it came from. But from the time he arrived in the farm in 1965, every cow was always Sukum, and every heifer was always little Sukum. A group of cows or calves were simply big Sukums or baby Sukums. Mary and Joseph, they will be, I said approvingly. Silence hung in the stale air. I reckoned that if you had backed it for 40 years' silence wasn't a void that needed to be filled, so I sipped my wine and said nothing. Howard reached for his pipe and the big red can of velvet tobacco that had been my Christmas gift to him that morning. You want to roll yourself a smoke, Allie? I got, my some, I got some papers here. I shook off the offer. Yep, Howard said as if to himself, that's the prettiest tree I've ever had, and this is shaping up to be the nicest Christmas I've ever had because you came by. I looked at the tree and then at the old man, ringed in tobacco smoke, staring at it and felt sad. Not for him. I felt sad for me. I had agreed to come to his house to accommodate him, a favor for a hired man. But he had not wanted a favor. All he wanted was the chance to share his Christmas good fortune with me. He had some new wine, a warm fire, his best Christmas tree ever, and weeks worth of tobacco. He was happy, and he wanted to give me some of that happiness. As I stared at the silhouette of Horde, of Horde the dairy man in the glow of the Christmas lights, I saw a man of great warmth, vast wealth, and pure honesty. He didn't have a checking account or credit card, but he was far richer than the condescending college boy on his sofa. Well, Horde, I said a very quiet minute later, I'd better go. We both need to be at the barn early tomorrow. He led me to the back door. Don't forget, he said, as I headed for the truck. We'll call those calves, Mary and Joseph. Almost 30 Christmas nights later, I've not forgotten two calves named Mary and Joseph and Howard's priceless gift of simple giving. Okay, let's go to our next column here. Uh, this is Nation and World News. We're going to start with the Digest column. Negotiators reach biodiversity deal. In Montreal, 
Negotiators reached a historic deal at a UN Biodiversity Conference early Monday that would represent the most significant effort to protect the world's lands and oceans and provide critical financing to save biodiversity in the developing worlds. The global framework comes on the day of the United Nations Biodiversity Conference, or COP15, scheduled to end in Montreal. China, which holds the presidency at this conference, released a new draft on Sunday that gave the sometimes contentious talks much-needed momentum. The most significant part of the agreement is a commitment to protect 30% of land and water considered important for biodiversity by 2030, also known as 30 by 30. Concurrently, 17% of the the terrestrial and 10% of marine areas are being protected. Back to Washington, court orders border rules left in place. The Supreme Court temporarily blocked an order Monday that would lift pandemic-era restrictions on asylum seekers, but is left open for the prospect of lifting the restrictions by Wednesday. The order by by Chief Justice John Roberts comes as conservative states push to keep limits on asylum seekers that then-President Donald Trump put in place during the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. They're appealing to the U.S. Supreme Court in a last-ditch effort before the limits are set to expire. In the one-page order, Roberts granted a stay pending further order and asked the government to respond by 5 p.m. on Tuesday. The restrictions are slated to expire on Wednesday. The immigration restrictions, often referred to as Title 42, were put in place under Trump in March of 2020. Now let's take a look at some uh, brief homeless news. Homelessness, President Joe Biden's administration announced Monday it will ramp up efforts to help house people now sleeping on sidewalks and in tents and in, and in cars. Airbags, Stellantis and U.S. safety regulators confirmed Monday that an exploding Takata airbag inflator killed another driver. The company and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration reiterated warnings to owners of 274,000 older Dodge and Chrysler vehicles to stop driving them until uh, faulty inflators are replaced. And I would like to remind you that you are listening to the reading of The Courier for Tuesday, December 20th. And I am your narrator, Peter Welch, and you are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Information Services Network for the Blind and the Disabled. Yes, we do have um, some obituary news. Uh, The first one is David Scrogans. David Scrogans, age 73, of Evansdale, passed on the 16th of December at UPH, which which is the Allen Memorial Hospital. Funeral services will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Thursday, December 22nd at Lock Garden View Chapel. And they're located at 3655 Logan Avenue in Waterloo. Family will greet friends an hour before the services at Lock Garden View Chapel. Rachel Upshaw has passed away on the 15th of, on the 15th of December. Funeral services will be held on Tuesday, the 27th of December at 11 a.m. at St. Peter's Lutheran Church in Denver, Iowa, with Pastor Elizabeth Palmer officiating. Burial will follow in the church cemetery. 
Visitation will be held on Monday, the 26th of December, from 4 to 7 p.m. at the Kaiser Corson Funeral Home in Denver, Iowa. Glenn Wahilty has passed uh, as of the 15th of December. Uh, funeral services and memorial services will be held at 11 a.m. on Thursday on December 22nd at Central United Methodist Church in Lawrence. The family is suggesting memorials in Paul's name to the Lawrence Habitat for Humanity and may be sent in care of Warren Dash. Let me spell this. It's uh, McElwain. It's M C E L W A I N uh, Mortuary at 120 West 13th Street in Lawrence, Kansas. And that's at 66044. And for more information or to post a condolence, you can go to, and I'll spell this, W-A-R-R-E-N-M-C-E-L-W-A-I-N dot com. And finally, Florence Dittmer uh, has passed at the age of 92 of rural Waterloo. Funeral services will be at 10.30 a.m. on Thursday on the uh, 22nd of December at Immaculate Conception Catholic Church in Gilbertville, Iowa. Burial will be at St. Joseph Catholic Cemetery at Raymond, Iowa. Public visitation will be from 3 p.m. to 7 p.m. Wednesday of uh, December 21st at the White Funeral Home in Jessup, Iowa. The vigil service will be held at 3 p.m. Visitation will continue for an hour before services Thursday at the church. Let's return now to uh, other news briefs. Bankman Freed, a lawyer for Sam Bankman Freed, was quoted as saying Monday, the disgraced FTX cryptocurrency exchange founder agreed to be extradited from the Bahamas to the United States to face criminal charges. It was not immediately clear when extradition could occur. Ecuador, with Ecuadorian President Guilmaro Lasso by his side, President Joe Biden said on Monday that the U.S. wants to expand and strengthen the U.S. relationship with one of its staunchest allies in South America and a country that's getting plenty of attention from China. Epic Settlement, the maker of the popular Fortnite video game, will pay $520 million in penalties and refunds to settle complaints revolving around children's privacy and its payment methods that trick players into making unintended purchases, U.S. federal regulators said on Monday. Family Killer, a man convicted in the killings of eight members of an Ohio family, was sentenced Monday to life in prison without the possibility of parole. George Wagner, the fourth was sentenced after a hearing at which the victim's family members urged the judge to show no mercy toward a man they called evil and remorseless. Twitter uses want Musk to quit. He says he would abide by poll results, but no word yet on plans. Millions of Twitter's users asked Elon, Elon Musk to step down as the head of Twitter in a poll that the billionaire created and promised to abide by. But by Monday afternoon, there was no word on whether Musk would step aside or who the new leader might be. Twitter has grown more chaotic and confusing under Musk's leadership with rapidly vacillating policies that are issued than withdrawn or changed. Among those voting with the Go camp, almost certainly were Telsa investors, 
who have grown tired of the 24-7 Twitter chaos that they say has distracted the eccentric CEO from the electric car company, his main source of wealth. Musk also used his Tesla stock to partially fund the acquisition of Twitter. Shares of Tesla are down 35% since Musk took over Twitter on October 27th, costing investors billions of dollars. Tesla's market value was over $1.1 trillion on April 1st, the last trading day before Musk disclosed he was buying up Twitter shares. The company has since lost 58% of its value at a time when rival automakers are cutting in on Telsa's dominant share of electric vehicle sales. This has been a black eye moment for Musk and been a major overhang on Telsa's stock, which continues to suffer in a brutal way since the Twitter soap opera began. Wedbush analyst Dan Ives wrote on Monday, if Musk's tenure ends, it would be a major positive for Telsa's stock and a sign that Musk is finally reading the room that has been growing frustrated around this growing Twitter nightmare, Ives goes on to say. Musk attended the World Cup final Sunday in Qatar, where he opened the poll. Since the poll closed early on Monday, Musk has been uncharacteristically silent on Twitter as he appeared to be flying back to the U.S., Musk has taken a number of unscientific polls on substantial issues facing the social media platform. The polls have only added to a growing sense of, of, tumult, of tumult on Twitter since Musk bought the company for $44 billion. The results of the online survey, which lasted 12 hours, show that five, or I should say 57.5% of the 17.5 million respondents wanted him to leave, while 42.5% wanted him to stay. I'm going to read the weather forecast for you. Normally, we, we don't read that that often, but because of the weather that's coming, I, I thought that might be something you might want to hear about. Uh, today, it will be partly sunny and colder. The wind will be out of the northwest uh, between 8 and 6 Six, 16 miles per hour, and the temperature should go up to about 13 degrees. But then tomorrow, things start to get a little trickier. Um, oh, I should say that tonight it will be cloudy and bitterly cold with the winds 6 to 12 miles per hour. Wednesday, very cold. A bit of p.m. snow and wind, and the wind will be between 7 and 14 miles per hour. It'll be 22 degrees, and the low will be 3 degrees. On Thursday, blizzard in the p.m., 2 to 4 inches with wind. North 15 to 25 miles per, per hour, a high of 9, and below 11 degrees below zero. On Friday, cold, very cold, cloudy, windy, and frigid. Wind, northwest out of uh, between 15 and 25 miles per hour. It'll be one below zero during the day and five below at night. And on Saturday, uh, we'll start having some sun, windy with clouds and sun. It will be windy between 15 and 25 miles per hour. The high will be five degrees and the low will only be seven. It'll be seven below zero. Okay, let's um, let's take a look now at an article um, that is in regard to uh, what's been going on with uh, Donald Trump. Uh, this is called Key Takeaways. It's called Roadmap to Justice. January 6th panel backs four charges for Trump. The January 6th committee set out to compile a public history record of the 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol.
but its final report has become so much more. A roadmap to justice as Americans come to terms with Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. The panel unanimously made four criminal referrals Monday against Trump for his role in the multi-part conspiracy that started with his false claims of a stolen election and ended in the mob siege of the Capitol. It sent the recommendations to the Justice Department, which is already conducting its own probe. In adopting its final report, the panel also recommended congressional ethics investigations for House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy and other members of Congress for their actions in defying Congress or congressional subpoenas for information about their interactions with Trump before, during, and after the bloody assault. The committee is nearing the end of its work, but as a country, we remain in a strange and uncharted waters, said Chairman Benny Thompson, Democrat of Mississippi. Nearly two years later, this is still a time of reflection and reckoning. He said, we have every confidence that the work of this committee will pro help provide a roadmap to justice. One man caused January 6th. Over its 18-month investigation, the panel laid out evidence that the January 6, 2021 attack at the Capitol was not a spontaneous rally, but an orchestrated scheme by Trump to try to overturn the 2020 election and lost to Joe Biden. Trump urged supporters to come to Washington for a big rally January 6. He whipped up supporters in a rally at the White House, knowing that some were armed. He sent the mob to the Capitol to fight like hell for his presidency. He tried to join them on Capitol Hill to stop Congress from counting the votes. All the while, Trump stoked theories from conservative lawyer John Eastman to create alternative slates of electors, switching certain states that voted for Biden to Trump that could be presented to Congress for the tally. Eastman also faces criminal referral by the Committee to Justice. The central cause of January 6 was one man, former President Donald Trump, who many others followed. None of the events of January 6 would have happened without him, the panel says in the report. No ringleaders get a pass. More than 800 people have been charged in the attack on the Capitol, and the panel showed that many of them were hanging on Trump's every word in the weeks after the November election. Along with militant Oath Keepers and Proud Boys, many other Americans stormed the Capitol that day. One said he wanted to do my part to stop the steal and stand behind Trump. Others detailed how the fighting only subsided once Trump tweeted hours later they should go home. In unveiling its decision to make criminal referrals to the Justice Department, the panel indicated that the importance of holding Trump and those around him responsible. Ours is not a system of justice where foot soldiers go to jail and the masterminds and ringleaders get a pass, said Representative Jamie Raskin, Democrat of Maryland, a constitutional scholar who played a lead role in drafting the documents. The Department of Justice has appointed a special prosecutor to investigate Trump's role in the Capitol attack, and the former president's efforts to upend the election results in Georgia are being probed by prosecutors in the state. 
Still, the, crim the criminal referrals of a former president are rare and grave. The panel quieted for a solemn roll call vote as each committee member agreed to adopt the final report and his recommendations for prosecuting Trump on inciting the insurrection and other charges. We understand the gravity of each and every referral we are making today, just as we understand the magnitude of the crime against democracy, Raskin goes on to say. GOP lawmakers under scrutiny. Top, re top Republicans in Congress include McCarthy, who is in line to become House Speaker when Republicans take control in the new year, face ongoing scrutiny over their actions before, during, and after January 6th. McCarthy was in close contact with Trump and White House officials that day and wanted Trump to call off the rioters and stop the siege. Other Republicans referred for ethics investigation by the committee are leaders of the conservative Freedom Caucus vying for power in the new Congress. Among them, Representative Andy Biggs, Republican of Arizona, who is challenging McCarthy for the Speaker's gavel. Representative Jim Jordan, Republican of Ohio, who is set to become the chairman of the House Jud Judiciary Committee. And Representative Scott Perry, Republican of Pennsylvania, who's the chairman of the Freedom Caucus. In its report, the committee said it believes that these lawmakers and others should be questioned in a public forum about their role in President Trump's plan to prevent the peaceful transition of power. A divided country. Rather than bring the country together, the events of January 6th continued to divide Congress and the country. The committee was born from division established by Democrats after Republicans in Congress blocked the formation of a 9-11 style independent commission that could probe the Capitol attack. The committee interviewed more than 1,000 witnesses and noted much of the public testimony came from some of four dozen Republicans, including Trump's former attorneys, general and other top White House officials. The hearings featured a number of members of President Trump's inner circle refuting his fraud claims and testifying that the election was not, in fact, stolen, the report goes on to say. Now let's go across to the other side of the country, to L.A., to Los Angeles. Weinstein has been found guilty of rape in Los Angeles trial. Conviction comes as disgraced movie mogul serves 23-year term in rape case. In L.A., Harvey Weinstein was found guilty Monday of rape at an L.A. trial in another Me Too moment of reckoning five days after he became a magnet for the movement. After deliberating for nine days over the course of more than two weeks, the jury of eight men and four women reached the verdict at the second criminal trial of the 70-year-old one-time powerful movie mogul who is two years into a 23 sentence for a rape and sexual assault conviction in New York. Weinstein was found guilty of rape, forced oral copulation, and another sexual misconduct count involving a woman known as Jane, as Jane Doe. One, the jury hung on several counts, notably charges involving Jennifer Sebel Newsom, the wife of California Governor Gavin Newsom. The jury reported it was unable to reach verdicts in her allegations and the allegations of another woman. A mistrial was declared on those counts. 
He was also acquitted uh, of a sexual battery allegation made by another woman. It's time for the defendant's reign of terror to end. Deputy District Attorney Marlene Marenz said in a prosecution's closing argument last week, it's time for the kingmaker to be brought to justice. Lacking any forensic evidence or eyewitness accounts of assaults, Weinstein's accusers said what happened from 2005 to 2013, the case hinged heavily on the stories and credibility of the four women at the center of the charges. The accusers included Newsom, a documentary filmmaker whose husband is California Governor Gavin Newsom. Her intense and emotional testimony of being raped by Weinstein in a hotel room in 2005 brought the trial its most dramatic moments. So, it's Tuesday. What's on TV? Well, let's take a look. Uh, another Christmas show here. Uh, Maria Carey, Merry Christmas to All on CBS at 7 p.m. Filmed at New York City's Madison Square Garden, this two-hour concert. Special features Maria Carey performing a repertoire of her festive holiday hits, including perennial favorite, All I Want for Christmas is You. Dr. Seuss, The Grinch. On NBC at 7 p.m., this 2018 computer animated retelling of Dr. Seuss, Dr. Seuss's classic, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, features Benedict Cumberbatch providing his voice as the titular holiday hater. The voice cast also includes Cameron Seeley, Rashida Jones, and Kenan Thompson. The Professionals, the CW, at 8 p.m., a season finale, Peter Vincent, and others must stop the rocket launch. The Wheel on NBC at 9 p.m. in boats, soaps, and wrestling ropes with trivia categories ranging from soap operas to mathematics. Tonight's contestants receive help from celebrity guests. Vicia A. Fox, Mike the Miz Mizanin, JoJo, John Urschel, and Bruno Tonioli. Now, let's take a look at Catching a Classic. And that is going to be an American Christmas Carol, which was released in 1979. Henry Winkler leads this likely little remembered and seen, but still charming and intriguing take on Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, a TV movie that first aired on ABC in 1979. It's set in Concord, New Hampshire during the Depression, and it features Winkler's Scrooge-like businessman Benedict Slade. Slade gets a chance at redemption, redemption, I should say, one Christmas Eve when he's visited, visited by three ghosts resembling three of the people whose possessions he seized to collect on their unpaid loans, who force him to reassess his life. Winkler was just approaching his mid-30s when he made this, but, but for Slade's present scenes, he comes across as an aged miser, impressively, thanks in part to future Oscar-winning makeup effects artist Rick Baker, who is billed as the film's special makeup consultant. And then there's also the 12 Days of Christmas, which was released in 2004 with Stephen Weber and Molly Shannon in a Groundhog Day-like comedy drama. And then Christmas Comes to Willow Creek, 1987, a drama that reunites the Dukes of Hazard co-stars John Schneider, Tom Wolpett, and also features Kim Delaney. And then the Bermuda Triangle, Into Cursed Waters, on the History Channel at 9 p.m., 
In Alien Abyss, the team enlists special equipment on epic search for two large Air Force planes that vanished in the Bermuda Triangle without a trace, with dozens of people aboard. Despite a massive search, noting, or I should say nothing, or I should say, was, was ever found. Are planes colliding with mysterious, unidentified aerial phenomenon that are now acknowledged as fact by the U.S. Navy? To investigate the group's embarks on one of its most harrowing dives yet, battling extreme depths and currents that threaten to sweep them away. All right, let's take a look at Today in History. Today's highlight on December 20th, 1803, the Louisiana Purchase was completed as ownership of the territory was formally transferred from France to the U.S. On this date, in 1860, South Carolina became the first state to secede from the Union as all 169 delegates to a special convention in Charleston voted in favor of separation. 1864, Confederate forces evacuated Savannah, Georgia, as Union Major General William T. Sherman nearly completed his march to the sea. In 1945, the Office of Price Administration announced the end of tire rationing, effective on the 1st of January, 1946. In 1963, the Berlin Wall was opened for the first time to West Berliners, who were allowed one-day visits to relatives in the eastern sector for the holidays. In, seven, in 1987, more than 4,300 people were killed when one Dona Paz, a Philippine passenger ship, collided with the tanker Vector off Mindoro Island. In 1989, the United States launched Operation Just Cause, sending troops into Panama to topple the governor of General Manuel Noriega. 1995, an American Airlines Boeing 757 en route to California, Colombia, slammed into a mountain, killing all but four of the 163 people aboard. In, in Bosnia, NATO began its peacemaking mission, taking over from the United Nations. In 1999, the Vermont Supreme Court ruled that homosexual couples were entitled to the same benefits and protections as wedded heterosexual couples. 2001, the U.N. Security Council authorized a multinational force for Afghanistan. 2002, Trent Lott resigned as Senate Republican leader two weeks after igniting a political firestorm with racially charged remarks. In 2005, a federal judge ruled that intelligent design could not be mentioned in biology classes in a Pennsylvania public school district, delivering a stinging attack on the Dover Area School Board. In 2016, President Barack Obama designated the bulk of U.S.-owned waters in the Arctic Ocean and certain areas in the Atlantic Ocean as, in, as indefinitely off-limits to future oil and gas leasing. Two-time Wimbledon champion Petra Kvitova was injured in her playing hand by a knife-welding attacker at her Czech Republic home and underwent surgery. The attacker was sentenced to 11 years in prison. And finally, there's a photo here. Putin makes rare trip to Belarus. Russian President Volodymyr Putin made a rare trip to, on Monday to Moscow's ally Belarus as his forces pursued their campaign to bombard Ukraine from the air amid a broad battlefield stalemate, stalemate almost 10 months into the war. 
This brief trip could herald more military support to the Kremlin war effort after Belarus provided Russia with a launching pad for the invasion of Ukraine last February. And that does it now for the reading of the Courier for December 20th. And I'm your narrator, Peter Welch, and you've been listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Information Services Network uh, for the Blind and the Disabled. Hey, wrap up and stay warm out there. The cold is approaching. Take care. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye.